Ben, what are you doing? Well, I would say that I'm just drifting here in the pool. We feeling villainous. We couldn't afford the risk, but we're still long stocks and we checked them rigorous. Market stuck in a range, but feeling ludicrous. Semi's getting grilled like a T-bone steak at Roots Chris. Oil prices popping and it feels insidious. Expecting inflation to fall like we're oblivious. Losing our way like old Odysseus. How do you expect us to stay on track when the track gets treacherous? We need to future-proof our plans. Cast spells like Severus. Levitate above the room, but check our hubris. That probably gonna make us fall like Julius Caesar. Blinded by the light and he miss Brutus. Creeping up knives out saying, let's do this. Hell bent for a leather like Judas. Priests to say the least, we're gonna get through this. Keeping our mind right, making our plan tight. We knew this way back when. We know it now, we won't miss. Our shot, this train don't stop, express this. Welcome back and welcome aboard. We're going to take you out to Future Proof, the world's largest wealth festival that took place in Huntington Beach, California last week in just a few minutes. But first, <coughs> who let the dogs out? Stocks fell hard to end a pretty active week last week as chip stocks led the tumble on Friday. This following news that Taiwan Semiconductor, the world's largest chip maker, would be delaying deliveries, raising concern that demand for semiconductors may be waning. Add to that another rise in oil prices as OPEC Plus's cuts are taking effect and a historical strike by the United Auto Workers against the big three U.S. automakers, and it's a gumbo of bad news weighing on sentiment. That kind of killed the buzz around the IPO market, where we finally saw some strength as Arm Holdings soared more than 20% on its debut on the NASDAQ last Thursday. That enthusiasm was curbed, though, on Friday following the news out of Taiwan because Arm makes, well, semiconductors. More on that in a minute. Consumer prices also came in hotter than expected as rising oil and food prices made the whole basket more expensive than the prior month. Same deal with producer prices. Strip out those volatile food and energy prices and core prices were little changed from last month, which reminds us that inflation is still very much in the narrative and we should expect to hear the Fed reiterate that this week when it meets on interest rates. That doesn't mean another rate hike is coming this Wednesday. We probably won't get one if you believe what Fed fund futures are doing, but we might in November and we should get accustomed to higher rates for longer. And all of that kind of has the stock market struggling to regain momentum. The Dow did manage a slight gain last week, up 0.1%, but the Nasdaq and S&P fell for the second week in a row, down 0.4% and 0.2% respectively. If it felt scary on Friday, that might have been due to the triple witching event, which brought in the simultaneous expiration of single stock index and stock option futures, coupled with the rebalancing of the S&P 500 index. That late August bounce has kind of faded, yet the S&P 500 has hovered within 2% of its 50-day moving average for 27 days in a row, the longest run in six years. No catalyst for the bulls to run, but plenty of economic concerns to build up our walls of worry. 10-year Treasury yields popped to 4.32%. Nice yield if you can get it, assuming you actually want it. And it's not so clear that all the usual government bond buyers want to own U.S. Treasuries these days. And that leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one, as bond yields climb and the stock market is stuck in this range, you got to wonder where all the money is going. Actually, it's not that mysterious. It's going into cash and it's been doing that all year. More than $1 trillion has now gone into money market funds so far this year, and there's over $5.5 trillion in there piled up in the vault. Those 4 to 5% yields are feeling pretty warm as the fall sets in, and the winds are blowing in more and more uncertainty. Call it a bear market for conviction because investors don't know how this story will end. 
If we're headed for a hard landing, which could mean a recession and a serious slowdown in lending and liquidity, investors will load up on cash and bonds. If we're headed for a soft landing, which means no recession or a very mild one, investors will be piling up on stocks and credit right now. But if we're headed for no landing and we float around in this vortex of uncertainty with high interest rates, stubbornly high inflation, a relatively strong labor market, and cautiousness in spending, money will stay in cash and commodities. It's no surprise that commodities are nearing six-month highs led by sugar, copper, and oil. Number two, back to that bank lending narrative for a minute. In case you hadn't noticed, financial institutions are getting tighter about lending lately. High interest rates, record high consumer debt, past bank failures, and concerns about the future may be contributing to that. A net 51% of U.S. banks are now tightening their lending standards, according to the Fed's latest senior loan officer opinion survey. That's the highest level since 2020, and not to be no chicken little this close to Thanksgiving, but when lending standards tighten and the banks are more scrutinous, recessions usually follow. And number three, ring the alarm because the IPO market finally woke up. As mentioned earlier, Arm Holdings, the UK-based semiconductor maker, re-entered the publicly traded markets last week, listing on the NASDAQ with the $50 billion-plus valuation and then spiking more than 25% in its trading debut on Thursday. That was the biggest tech IPO in four years, and it brought some excitement back to the stock market for a few hours. The excitement faded on Friday as semi-stocks got slammed, and maybe people took a better look under Arm's financials. Japan SoftBank owns 90% of Arm's shares, which means just 10% is available to the public. And with its eye-popping valuation and its first-day price pop, Arm is supporting a price-to-earnings ratio of 119. NVIDIA, the real Don Dada of the semiconductor yard, sports a price-to-earnings ratio of about 108, and it brought in close to $27 billion in fiscal year 2023. Arm only brought in $1.7 billion last year, which was down 1% from the prior year. Still, the IPO gates are open, just in time for the high holy days, naturally, and we are going to see a couple more high-profile companies testing the public markets. Instacart, the online grocery delivery company, and Birkenstock, the 250-year-old German sandal maker. Those Berks might be comfortable, but that doesn't necessarily give them the traction investors need for trapping gains in the future. Both Instacart and Birkenstock are likely facing down rounds if and when they go public, meaning that they aren't planning to raise as much as they'd hope to due to lackluster demand. Watch your step with these new stocks. Let's get set up for a massively massive week ahead, and central banks are in the spotlight. We're going to get interest rate decisions from the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the central banks of Sweden, Norway, and Switzerland, and the Bank of Japan this week as inflation worries have resurfaced. Fed fund futures show a 98% probability that the US Fed will hold rates right where they are, but we should expect to hear warning words from Chair Jay Powell about what the Fed might do in November if inflation remains stuck in this range. Right now, the CME's FedWatch tool shows a 27% probability that the Fed will hike rates another 25 basis points at its November 1st meeting. Japan's central bank is expected to keep rates steady, but the Bank of England is expected to hike rates another quarter point in what might be its final rate increase in this historic tightening cycle. If the B of E does raise rates, they will be at their highest levels since 2008. The U.S. housing market will also be in focus this week with the latest updates on building permits, housing starts, and existing home sales for August and the NAHB's housing market index for September. Housing stocks have come well off their highs as investors are coming to grips with the reality of higher interest rates for longer. We're also going to be keeping a close eye on developments between the United Auto Workers, who went on strike against the big three automakers early Friday morning. It's the first time in history that the UAW has gone on strike against all three U.S. automakers simultaneously. The two sides are very far apart on a deal, and a strike lasting 10 days could cost more than $5 billion, and the numbers keep climbing after that.
and the drumbeat is getting louder around a possible government shutdown come October 1st. There is no deal in sight on Capitol Hill, not even close, and the clock keeps ticking. And brace yourselves for a couple rough weeks in the stock market. The last two weeks of September are historically the worst for the U.S. stock market all year, but even scarier following a triple witching day like we had on Friday. Money is looking for a place to go right now, and the safest place seems to be in the bank. Just don't try to get a loan. We spent the better part of last week on the boardwalk in Huntington Beach, California at the Future Proofed Wealth Festival. This was the second year our friends at Advisor Circle and Ridholtz Wealth hosted the festival, and it was bigger and better than ever. More than 2,000 financial advisors, investors, finfluencers, and financial service professionals flocked to the beach for several days of learning, sharing, and getting down to G-Love and Special Sauce and Method Man with Red Man, who brought the heat and the beat. We caught up with some of the key players in the financial services space, including David Lavelle, the global head of ETFs at Grayscale Investments, to find out what's next for that Bitcoin ETF we've all been waiting for. Here's where things stand now and where Grayscale thinks they'll be in the near future. Grayscale's got some news, right? You've been trying to push a Bitcoin ETF for some time now. You had a significant sort of victory or movement within the Supreme Court. Explain to our listeners kind of what happened and what that means going forward now. Right. So in June of 2022, we had our Bitcoin spot filing denied by the SEC, and we challenged that decision in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And so that set off an appellate court process that culminated a couple of weeks ago where we had a unanimous decision from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and they agreed that denying our Bitcoin ETF application was unfounded. And so we're very excited to have that win. It's a big win for our investors, a big win for the crypto market, big win for the ETF market. And we're really excited about that. You guys were, I think, among the first to file to actually put a Bitcoin-related ETF to market. And then we know there's been a lot of big financial institutions that have followed. But you've also built up a significant amount of assets in the Grayscale Trust that could be converted. Explain to our listeners, what's that process if you were to convert from that trust, which is kind of like a mutual fund, to this ETF? So very interestingly, we, we talk about a conversion, except it's probably not the most articulate way to talk about what's going to happen upon the eventual approval of our product to be converted into an ETF. If you own our flagship product, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC, and we get an approval, the next day it's trading on the New York Stock Exchange and it's you know behaving like an ETF behaves. And so there's a couple of things that are going to happen that are more along the lines of a corporate action than they are, you know, like a mutual fund conversion that I think a lot of investors and advisors are comfortable with. But we're very excited about that process and we've been operationally ready uh, for over two years now and we're, we're excited for it to happen. Why an ETF? Why is that a good vehicle right. for Bitcoin or Bitcoin related product right now? When people think about these individual coins or the derivatives of these coins, right. the ETF doesn't necessarily come to mind on the same. On the other hand, there are some attractive things about ETFs that do make a lot of sense for retail investors. There's a great analog here and it's, it's really gold. And in 2004, when gold was brought to market in the form of an ETF, it solved a lot of problems that individual investors had. Now, everyone knew that gold was an inflation hedge and everybody wanted to have gold in their portfolio, but owning gold, you know, the custody of the gold and keeping gold in a vault, and there wasn't really an efficient market for a retail investor to kind of access the gold market. Many of those complexities are also found in the Bitcoin market as well. And, you know, ETFs have long been building blocks for investors. And we think that this is going to be a perfect way for retail investors and for the advisors to utilize 
the ETF wrapper is a building block for their digital asset exposure, starting with Bitcoin and then, you know, growing from there. So if I open up that Bitcoin ETF, let's say one day that it is formed, what am I going to find inside there? What am I actually buying? Yeah, it's a very, very simple product. It's just Bitcoin in a vault. And so the 33 Act Delaware Grantor Trust, which is a very technical way of explaining exactly what the wrapper is, is a very simple product and it can only hold Bitcoin. And so when you invest in GBTC, when it converts into an ETF, you will just be holding a financial product that holds Bitcoin and Bitcoin alone. All right, so price, Bitcoin price will dictate sort of the price of that Bitcoin. It should ETF. track incredibly closely to the underlying value of Bitcoin. Right, so again, there's a lot of assets already in the trust, which would make it not easy, but a lot easier to just convert that because there is an investor appetite for that. But broadly speaking, and I'm not asking you to predict the price of Bitcoin, but what are the catalysts for Bitcoin's continued price improvement over the years? We know the scarcity models out there, yep. but we've also seen Bitcoin have some fabulous booms and busts. Yeah, so Bitcoin is a volatile asset. We're sensitive to that, uh, but we feel very confident with the halving that's coming up and bringing Bitcoin in the form of an ETF wrapper will only really drastically increase the user base because it's going to be available to the advised market in a way that it hasn't been available before. And we think that's going to be a very, very bullish predictor for the product. Okay. And after, once it becomes available, it's available to retail investors like me and my that's listeners, right. but it's also available to my financial advisor should I want exposure to Bitcoin. What do you think the appetite's going to be among the advisory community based upon what we've seen just historically with Bitcoin? So the frustration that advisors have had, and we've been engaging with advisors for years now, is that Bitcoin and digital assets are largely not available on the platforms that those advisors are affiliated with. And so many times they're losing assets to places like Coinbase or you know other digital asset exchanges. And it's not only that they're frustrated that they're losing assets, they're also losing the full picture of their client's portfolio. And so the ETF is a wrapper that advisors are very comfortable with. Again, they're utilizing them as building blocks for their client's portfolios. And they're going to be available on those platforms because the platforms actually know how to deal with an ETF, know how to diligence an ETF. And again, they'll be utilizing them with, I think, a lot of a lot of success. Okay, Not a lawyer necessarily, but Crystal Ball, are we going to see a Bitcoin ETF in 2023 or do you think it's a 2024-25 story? Well, it's certainly not an if, it's a when. We feel really confident about it, but we have a little bit of a waiting period right now to ensure that the appellate process is followed and that the SEC has an opportunity to uh, really digest what the court has written. But we're confident that there will be a Bitcoin ETF in the in the near future. I also had the honor of interviewing two people who I admire a lot in the world of sports and money. Jay Williams, the legendary Duke basketball player who was the second round pick in the NBA draft in 2002, and Joe McClain, considered to be one of the preeminent advisors to professional athletes and entertainers. Joe is a regular on the Express, and he's been working closely with Jay, who left the NBA after two seasons following a devastating motorcycle crash in 2003 that effectively ended his professional sports career. But Jay didn't hang it up by any means. He went on to become one of the most respected sports analysts and commentators in the business and co-hosted one of the top shows on ESPN with Keyshawn Johnson and Max Hellerman for years. His podcast, The Limits with Jay Williams, is one of the top rated sports pods out there today. And Jay has become a serial entrepreneur with a restaurant in New York City and as a partner in Epic Insurance, providing professional athletes with financial services. Jay, Joe, and I spoke about the business of sports and the transition we are watching in front of us as athletes have become the asset and sports teams and leagues are attracting investors, both public and private. 
Here's a few minutes from our conversation at FutureProof. Both of your careers have really been about pivots and then about sort of acceleration or that trampoline effect, right? You were the number two draft pick, as is well known. You had a motorcycle accident earlier in your pro career. You had to make a big pivot and a big change, but you didn't do that passively. You went through a lot to get there. So take us back to that moment when you realized that professional sports was not going to be the way you earned your living going forward. Well, I was depressed. I went through two attempts at suicide. I think for me, it was very challenging because as somebody that graduated Duke in three years, my father, we had this coming to Jesus moment going into my freshman year. You know, Coach K was brilliant at kind of building that bridge between business and sports. And we would do these fantasy camps where guys would pay $15,000, $20,000 literally to live in the dorms that we live in, practice on the same courts that we practice on. And I remember one time, you know, all these executives and CEOs were in one place and I was with Carlos Boozer on the other side and my dad came and he slapped me upside the head and he said, what do you want to be one day? And I said, I want to be a CEO. And he said, well, why the hell are you over here? You need to be over there. So I quickly learned after going over there that a lot of CEOs and a lot of people involved in private equity and VCs, they wanted to be athletes. So there was a bridge to build that connection, that connectivity. But frankly, my identity was what I did. And I think it took me a long time to really discover what businesses I wanted to be involved in after I got hurt, because I had to kind of reteach myself, retrain myself how to tap back into all the different access points that the game of basketball had given me. And uh, I think once I realized what that was, I noticed that I can walk into any door with anybody, and then what was gonna allow me to continue to have that footprint, and that's when I started to lean into media. Right, and you've leaned into it in a big way, and folks, if you haven't been paying attention, there's been some news lately. Jay Williams is joining F1. Wait, did I read that wrong? There was no reaction from the crowd, by right. the way, either. Zero reaction. They're like, what's F1? Yeah, that's Formula One <laughs> to those of you out there. But no, you've made a, a, an announcement. You came out on Instagram the other day after speculation about what your future might be like with ESPN, creating your own brand, creating your own platform. And you emphatically said yes to all three. Give us a little bit more texture around what you've decided to do and what we can expect. So I think similar to how athletes are moving, I think I've been able to build a world around my entire ecosystem. And I think right now within ESPN, it's an interesting time. You know, Bob Iger the other day on CNBC talking about will we take a strategic investment as a partner? Uh, who knows if that could be Google, Apple, Verizon. I think there's a lot of people kind of in that game right now. But I think for me, frankly, I think I bring a unique perspective and that my value add isn't just in commentary around sports. I think that there is this very fascinating ecosystem and intersection between sports, business, and finance. And I think being able to build something with inside ESPN as my partner, while on top of still doing some day-to-day -day duties on college game day and some other things, right? I think it's a value add to what the network is trying to extend because we need to extend our athlete relationships. Right? Like right now, a lot of our highest revenue drivers are salacious commentary where it's polarizing and they go viral, but it really creates friction between the athletic world and the media world. And for me, building the boardroom with KD and Rich Kleiman, their investment arm, 35 Ventures, seeing what Giannis is doing with Anti-Inc., seeing what Steph Curry's doing with his media company, I think how do we tell more athlete-driven side of the story? and also while you're building a business doing the same time. So that's the ecosystem that I'm going to lean into within ESPN. Yeah, and for Joe, that's kind of where you've been leaning for a while and kind of pushing your business 
joining MAI Capital, launching that part of the business, the intersection between sports, athletes, the investability in not just sports, but in the athlete themselves, and something that both of you have done, which is making the investment in yourselves. Really, that's the through line. Not only are you clients and friends, but that's the through line. So right now, from your perspective, Joe, as you talk to athletes, as you talk to client athletes, how are you talking to them about the way the landscape has changed and how to position themselves for that? Well, what's interesting is sports and entertainment have become its own asset class now. You see now institutional models and private equity funds all trying to get access to that marketplace. And when you look at sports and entertainment, you think about it like a stock. There's gross stocks, value stocks, dividend stocks. There's all types of different ways to get access to it, whether it's curating your own content and owning it and distributing it and telling your story, creating a platform for others that have an aspiration to tell the story, owning different teams. And I think owning franchises is going to look completely different 10 years from now than what it looks like today. And the sports will look differently. Like As of right now, we're doing due diligence on SailGP, which I don't know if anyone has, has watched SailGP, but I would, I would jump on Instagram. It's the Formula One of, of yacht racing. There's crickets coming to America, obviously pickleball, indoor golf leagues with Tiger Woods. There's just going to be so many different ways to get access to it. And part of our advice with athletes is that you are the asset of the asset class. And so that's changing a mindset in terms of how you want to think about yourself for being a pro, not just on the court or on the field, but also off the court and off the field. Right. The paycheck you make from playing or participating in sports should be very different from what you do with your money. Joe I, knows this. I borrow this expression from Joe all the time, which is, how much does it cost to be you? That's right. How much does it cost to be the you you want to be? So how have you applied that as you realize you were not going to play professional sports, you launched a terrific broadcast career, and now you're facing this moment where you're really investing heavily in your own brand and extending that through other platforms. How are you figuring out the way you want to be able to afford that and pay for that over time? Well, it's kind of, it's interesting the way everything works. So within MAI Capital, like I'm a partner of Galway Holdings, which is the whole co that actually they're one of our portfolio companies. So I think for me, it's naturally led in that direction. One of my really good friends is a guy named Patrick McCreesh, who worked at Booz Allen for a very long time, obviously working with a lot of data-driven assignments within the government. We started our own company called Symmetry. This is about seven or eight years ago. And I think through working with Symmetry, which is a CDO or CTO as a service, right, to do it at scale, we had seven or eight clients from Foot Locker to a lot of you know, Fortune 500 brands, and then that got acquired by Galway Holdings. My family office with Monarch Business Family and Wealth with Barry Clarberg, we got acquired by Galway Holdings. So I think now being a partner with John and kind of looking at everything that we're having these conversations about, uh, it's fascinating even like with the Saudis, right? And them giving Mbappe $773 million for a one-year deal. Just where sports and the investment thesis around that is, but also, you know, prefer rates within investment opportunities for ownership stakes of teams. Every athlete's trying to be involved, even entertainers in that world. And I also think there's a below the lines business. Last night I was with one of the biggest steel manufacturers in the world, right? Understanding that, you know, they did a 1.5 billion square feet of real estate within the Midwest. So you start seeing these underlying businesses and how they're monetized. And I think athletes, entertainers are now saying, hey, look, I can help you scale that by bringing more opportunity to you. And now it's about the curriculum to help them monetize it. So as an advisor, and you have a lot of professional athletes as clients, how do you advise them on looking at that entire 360 opportunity? Because to some of them, this is going to be one of the biggest checks they see. But it also is the opportunity to have the platform, Joe, to establish businesses, to be entrepreneurs or be investors, be it active or passive. How do you counsel them today? 
I think it starts with reminding themselves how they got there, right? With, with an extraordinary amount of discipline, stuck to the fundamentals, had an extraordinary talent, and then applied a lot of work around it. And so at early stages of your career, it's reminding somebody that your number one jump shot is your venture capital fund. Like you've got to go out and perform and establish your brand. And Coach Olson, which we, we had a, the blessing of having two different college coaches that were around for at least 25 years or more in one program. And so created a culture. And he always reminded me was, it's not who you know, it's what people know about you and how they think about you. And so it's curating your life from your character, both on the court and off the court. And so, but you've got to reserve the right to be an entrepreneur. You can't just get this contract and then blindly start investing as an entrepreneur. You've got to take the steps from a fundamental standpoint, no different than what made you great as a player. And so whether it's sticking to your safety and security bucket and understanding what it costs to be you and always having that kind of cash available, understanding what it means to be liquid versus illiquid and getting money to work for you and how that works, because that's something that none of us went to college to teach you how to get money working for you. And then once you've created that and you're feeding that bucket of what it costs to be you, now you've reserved the right to be an entrepreneur. Because one of the conversations we have all the time is the strengths that made you great at your respective sport, bet on yourself at all costs. I'm willing to go broke. I don't care what it takes. I will grind, I will grind, I will grind. I will take all the risks that it takes to make it. Those aren't always the same attributes that make you a great investor. And so it's identifying your personality and your philosophy, reserving the right to be an entrepreneur and taking the right steps to get there. Because that's why now you don't see the stories of people going broke. People are being far more thoughtful about it and recognizing the value that I still have to perform. That's your brand, is greatness, is excellence is winning. And then now how do you take that to win off the field? So for you, do you remember your first sort of aha moment about wealth, about how wealth is really created, about <laughs> the way money really works? Do you remember what that was like for you and what was going on in your life? Uh, One million percent. So, you know, when I got drafted second overall, one of the first experiences in my life was I got a call from Jerry Reinsdorf. Literally owner the, that former night, owner of the Bulls. Yeah, former, yeah. And literally that night, I remember the call coming across and us having a conversation, not only about what his expectations were of me as a player, but his expectations of me in my brand coming from Duke, how he knew I wanted to be involved in business. And he wanted to be a person that was going to be on my personal board. And I remember hanging up the phone, talking to my father saying, I want to be that. Like, this is fun. I think I can make generational wealth doing this, but I have aspirations to be that. Be the guy on the other side I of the I want to write the checks to the individuals who are helping me scale my business. And I think um, ownership within team sports is so fascinating. On my way over, we were talking about, it's almost, not that it's bulletproof, but to an extent, like think about the Clippers, right? Think about like where Donald Sterling got in on that investment and obviously what happened with that before, I mean, essentially he got asked to go away for $2.3 billion. And look, the economy can fall during different times, but I think understanding what ownership looks like was the first time at that moment where I was like, okay, no longer am I just a participant to help a brand scale. I want to be the owner of things that I think are organic and authentic to who I am. So that became my whole thesis. Right. Just watching who are listening to the person on the other side of the phone and saying, that's, that's it. That's where the power is right now. Exactly. So Joe, you played pro ball after Arizona, but then you went back to get your MBA. Why did you decide to do that? And where was your wealth moment along your journey to where you decided, not only do I want to learn this, I want to learn it and teach it. Yeah. And, and using the term played when I'm sitting next to him, let's use that very loosely when it comes to me. Um, <laughs> when I went to college, I was there to play basketball. I got my degree, but I was really focused on playing. And so I knew I had to go back to grad school and figure out the next transition. And that was by far, 
I turned 50 this year. That was the hardest transition I've ever made in my life because the one thing you get with sports is the locker room, the sense of accountability, the routine, the schedule, the collective goals that we're all trying to accomplish. And, and when you leave the game, it's gone tomorrow, that day. And so for me, I was just looking for another locker room to be a part of. And I did a lot of tech interviews, but found some people in financial services actually at Franklin Templeton at the time. This is 1998, 99. And they were just a bunch of coaches. And they told me, you don't know nothing about nothing. And the faster you learn that, the faster you'll be curious to start learning something. And so I just kind of grabbed onto that because most of my coaches or teachers were the ones that were the hardest on you and most honest with you. And so I got into financial services and just similar to what my background was in basketball was just trying to get on the floor in any way I could. I wasn't always the best player, but I could find a way to stay on the floor and to serve the other guys. And so that's what I wanted to do in sports. My money moment really was, I made a good chunk of money over in Europe and I had given it to a Merrill Lynch investor. And all I knew was you would put it into a tech mutual fund in 99 and it would go from $10 to $110 overnight. Like this is really easy. And then eventually it went from 110 to zero. So I lost all my money as an early investor in mutual funds in a tech market when the bubble bursted in 2000. But that was the best time for me to learn. I wasn't a retiree, I was a young person. And so it gave me a lot of perspective as to what type of investment philosophy I had to, had to build. All right, so a lot's happened in the world of the business of sports over the last few decades. If you were counseling Jay as a second round pick today. Second, second pick? round. I mean, as a second pick. <laughs> as a se- <laughs> I was just giving back to you no, for the top good. 10. I had to catch on to it for a second. <laughs> You were counseling Jay as the second pick, only to Yao Ming, who is eight feet tall. Seven, six, yeah. Right. There's a lot of those guys if out If you were there. counseling him as a second pick overall to the National Basketball Association today, what would be some of the first few things you would go over with him? What's interesting is if it's happening today, they're having these conversations way before the draft, way before probably college starts because of the NIL landscape and the collective landscape. So there, there is some kind of conversation around that prior to that. But the first real conversation when it comes to you are the second pick in the draft and here's your contract is, I don't know if you remember the day, was here's the difference between gross and net of taxes. <laughs> and so you see that, en- that enormous difference between the two. I had a client who said, why do they call it a tax return? Because they, they never return anything to me. Or, um, or jock tax. <laughs> the jock tax and, and it's 10% right now in the NBA that you may or may not get back based on the collective bargaining agreement and the profitability of the overall league. But it's having an understanding of the flow of money going in and out of your life. Because what I just mentioned before about this great abundance of discipline, but in life, in reality, wherever there's great abundance, most people are less disciplined because it just keeps coming and coming. And in the world of finance, when you're just swiping, and the money's going out, but there's still money going in, there's no immediate consequence to what your behaviors are. And so it has to be about this collective co-piloted experience of just asking questions, what it is that you're trying to accomplish. No different than the conversations a lot of people in this room have with their clients. It's universal. But as a 21-year-old or 22-year-old, you may not have 30-year goals. We're just still trying to think what we're doing next Friday. And so keep it very, very short-term, have very short goals, understand the consequences of it. I want to be a millionaire. Well, let's look at the date. When does that happen? (laughs) That's a great report to send when you get your first check. You see the taxes. Maybe it's not the first check, but it's the next check. Then you got to stay a millionaire. But if you're overspending, you add too many materialistic things to your life, you don't accomplish that. So at the end of the day, what I would want for Jay is to be the pro's pro. You guys both played for legendary coaches, 
larger than life figures, not just coaches, but mentors, right? You talked a little bit about Coach K. I would love to know from both of you quickly, the most important life lesson you learned from Lou Olson and what you learned from Coach K, one or two of the quick life lessons that they brought to you that you'll never forget. Uh, Coach, Coach Olson was a huge, high-character person, never cursed. Um, if we cursed, we were thrown out of practice, and inevitably all of us got thrown out of practice at, at least once. What he taught us, there would be, number one, like McDonald's All-Americans coming in on recruiting trips all the time, but he made sure that we would take them out, go to a party, just see how they carried themselves around everybody else. And then the next day, we always huddled up in terms of, he would ask us, what do we think about this person? And there was a ton of McDonald's All-Americans that just didn't fit. They didn't kind of have the character that he, he set forth for everybody. And he was willing to say, absolutely not, they're not coming. And so what happened was 25 years of players like that and 100 different players that, that had a culture for, for the rest of our life and relationships. So um, he was just big on pushing that. It wasn't about basketball. It was about preparation and, and life. Yeah, similar. Coach K used to always talk about the line, best in class. So he would say, hey, I'm recruiting the best in class. And he'd say, Jay, tell me what you know about being a small forward. I would say, I coach him a point guard. I know nothing about being a small forward. He's like, well, say hello to Mike Dunleavy, who's one of the best small forwards to play the game of college basketball. You guys just share information. You know, welcome to Shane Battier. So I start learning about all these different positions. And I think it was fascinating because over time, best in class is also what you need to succeed in what we're doing. So are you seeking out the best in class to learn from? Because any executive, you have to delegate responsibilities. So I, I think learning quickly that I don't know what I don't know, but going to best in class, the experts to learn about things I don't know and lean into that and then take that advisement and apply it to my everyday life, I think has been one of the best traits I've ever learned from him. All right. You mentioned a couple of teammates, but let's talk about not your favorite, but the teammate you admire the most that you played with, not necessarily because of their athletic ability, but because of their character. I know you got a lot of friends and from a lot of from like a lot overall of your time. or in college or just o in general. Overall, in well, overall, I think didn't get a chance to play with him. I played against him, but I mean, Kobe being Bryant was special to me, and it wasn't mama mentality and the way he operationalized that and you know, what his investment was, obviously with some different companies where there was a big payoff. I think he was a high character person that had a lot of high touch points with individuals. And I think it was the first time my rookie year that he started talking to me about the value of myself. Coach K had talked about it, but I don't think I really recognized it until I got to the pros. And I mean, I met some incredible human beings through him that were uber successful in life but it was on a very human basis. It wasn't about what kind of deal flow did you bring. It was just people striving to try to be better fathers, better husbands. And I think in this world where everybody's so monetarily driven and we're obviously all incentivized to do that, I think there's a little bit of a character flaw. Like the attention is so fixated and myopic on making money that the character aspect sometimes becomes missing. So I think being with Kobe and kind of seeing how he surrounded himself with those type of people. And granted, he went through the challenges of life, ups and downs. But seeing him towards the end, that's who I aspire to be as a, as a dad to my children and as a husband to my wife along this path of still trying to be successful entrepreneurially. How about for you, Joe? I'd say it, for me, it'd be Damon Sotomayor. He was a, a teammate of mine for three years and then rookie of the year in, in the NBA with the Toronto Raptors. He was by far way better than any of us on the team, but he knew the value of trying to make everybody else better. But then watching his journey in the NBA, the, the one thing he was very honest with me when he signed a hundred plus million dollar deal 
is we would try to beat each other to practice as we were growing up in terms of who would outwork each other. And he actually was sharing these situations where he had signed the deal and he started hitting the snooze button. And he started, you know, all the things that made him great, he stopped doing. And it took him a while to recognize that personally in terms of why, why am I hitting this snooze button? Because the, the money wasn't really the goal. It was just, this, you know, becoming rookie of the year and, and, and wearing the logo on your socks and all that. And that had happened. And then the money came with it. And then it started changing his personality. But the fact that he eventually recognized that and stopped hitting the snooze button was just reminding me of no matter where we're at, no what stage in life we are, kind of be self-aware in terms of when are you hitting that, that snooze button and, and get your butt back out of bed and go back to grinding and enjoying the journey. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from the United Auto Workers, who went on strike against the big three automakers early last Friday. The UAW's president, Sean Fain, called for what's called a stand-up strike. Let's let him explain it through this video produced by the United Auto Workers. This is our generation's answer to the sit-down strike of the 1930s. We're calling it the stand-up strike. This is a strike that starts small and builds over time as more and more of us stand up and join the fight. This is a strike that keeps the companies guessing as to where and when the next local will walk out. And just as importantly, we are striking the big three, all three. A stand-up strike is when only a portion of the union members stand up and walk out. It's a nod to the sit-down strikes of the 1930s against General Motors, and in this case, only 12,700 workers stood up and walked off the lines at three plants owned by GM, Ford, and Stellantis. There are 168,000 UAW members and dozens more auto plants around the country. If no deal is reached, the UAW will authorize strikes at other plants without notice, thereby causing the automaker's supply chains to dry up since they can't predict their inventory needs or their output. This conflict has the potential to get really bad really fast. Thanks for riding with us this week, as always, and special thanks to Jay Williams, Joe McLean, and Dave Lavelle for chatting with us, and a very, very special thank you to FutureProof for having Investopedia out in Huntington Beach. We'll be back next year, and we'll let David Sanchez, a singer-songwriter we met on the Huntington Beach Pier, take us out this week, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. Yeah. 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 Yeah.